We're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus, Free at Last. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Listen as I read this part of the narrative to us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Israel. Uh, the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. 
But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask this morning that you would speak a word to us. We pray that as all of us sit under the authority of your word, you would do that work by your spirit through the power of your word, that you would transform us, Lord, and conform us into the image of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray for this. We ask this in his mighty name. We pray. Amen. Whenever there is an experience of great suffering, like the senseless murder of those children, the teachers in Texas, the senseless murder of the black shoppers at the Topps Grocery in Buffalo, the men, women, and children in a now three-month-old war in Ukraine. We speak of the need of those enduring the suffering to experience the presence and support of the community around them, or even communities outside of them. What people need, we feel, is to be surrounded by those who will grieve with them and who will act on their behalf to bring healing, even deliverance where possible from the suffering they are enduring. Indeed, even some of our talk about changing laws or policies about weapons can, if we are able to set aside our cynicism, can come out of the same concern to act on behalf of those who are suffering. What people need is someone to come, someone with the power to speak and act with comfort, with healing, with the power to change things. Moses had tried to act as this kind of person on behalf of his countrymen in the previous story in chapter 2. He had, he had tried uh, through taking matters into his own hands to show himself as one who was concerned about the plight of his people and as one who could do something about their situation. Yet what he ended up doing was angering the Pharaoh and creating almost certainly more trouble for his people and trouble for himself. Trouble that caused him, as I said last week, to become a fugitive and a foreigner in a land not his own. Yet what Moses was about to discover at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, was the reason his own hands failed to bring deliverance for his people. What Moses was about to come face to face with in that burning bush was the only one whose presence could bring to the suffering Israelites the deliverance that they needed. Yes, Moses and the elders of Israel would be involved, yet all their actions would be to proclaim in word and deed that the Lord himself, the God of their fathers, the Lord of heaven and earth, had come down, having seen and heard the suffering of his people and was now present to deliver them. They would go to a suffering people and speak and act in the same way that we as Christians are called to go to the suffering both inside and outside the household of God and speak and act to declare not only that we are here, but more importantly that the Lord is here. You see, salvation and the blessings that flow from it are not 
in us, they are in the Lord. It is the Lord who works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. It is the Lord who hears the cry of the afflicted and works salvation for them. Thus, when God's church shows up among the suffering, it should be to speak and act to declare that the Lord himself has come down. And in his coming, there is salvation. You see, the good news of the gospel that we proclaim is the good news of a God who comes down to where we are, who enters into, enters into the spaces of our griefs and our sorrows, who, who allows himself in Christ Jesus to be pierced by our transgressions and crushed by our iniquities, a God who heals us through the wounds suffered by his own son on our behalf. This is who Moses met at Mount Sinai in that burning bush. He didn't, he didn't meet the God who saves from a distance, but the God who saves by making himself present. He met the God who says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. Is this the God that people encounter when they encounter us as Christians? Do they encounter the God who comes down in Jesus to save? Do, do, they, do, do they encounter the God who bears griefs and sorrows? The, the God who hears the cries of the afflicted? Is this the God we bring to the suffering and hurting of the world? I want to remind us this morning, Christians, that this is who Moses met at the burning bush. He was invited to take off his sandals because the ground on which he was standing was holy ground. But it was holy ground because it was holy ground precisely because God had drawn near. It was holy ground because God had come down made himself present in the midst of his people's sufferings. Though, though God is wholly other than us, though, though he is perfect in all of his being, yet he makes a way to be near to us in our suffering, to save us, to deliver us, to set us free. So I want to ask this question for us this morning, what does God's coming down, what does his presence bring to us in the middle of that suffering? What does his salvation look like? God, brothers and sisters, comes down to refresh, to refresh. God, through this miraculous sign of a bush that burned but was not consumed, invited Moses into his presence. He introduced himself to Moses as the God not only of his father but of his ancestors, reminding Moses of the promises he had made to them, promises that, uh, that, 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 that were waiting to be fulfilled, promises that must have, uh, to the people of uh, Israel, felt too distant to even imagine. And yet it was to fulfill those very promises uh, that God had come now to his people. God has been intimately acquainted with his people suffering. He has seen the oppression that they are under, and now he is present to deliver them. I want you to pay attention to the shape of God's deliverance in this text. 
Listen again to how God describes to Moses what he is about to do. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And again he says, I have observed you and what has been done to you, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Zebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Brothers and sisters, God's salvation isn't just about what He is going to bring us up out of. It is also about what He is going to bring us into. God's salvation is not just what He is taking you out of, it is is also about what He is bringing you into. God's deliverance is not just up out of, it is also into, up out of a place of weariness and into a place of refreshment. Up out of a place of hunger and into a place of being well fed. Up out of a crushing poverty and into a place of daily provision, up out of the realm of death and into the realm of life. And as Christians, we we know this to be our story, to be our song, and we can multiply biblical texts that describe this experience. Just think of the words in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and done what? Transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Or think of the words in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. God's coming down isn't just a promise to bring us up out of something, but a promise to bring us into an experience of refreshment from our experiences of suffering. And while those experiences, brothers and sisters, of refreshment are not full and not final, in this life, they point to that which is going to be full and final in the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, we can trust God in this life to meet us with those saving experiences, His saving presence, and bring those periods of refreshments, those up out of and into experiences that point us toward what is coming. I want to tell you this morning that the Lord knows when and where and how to restore our souls. In Psalm 23, for instance, the psalmist speaks of God as the restorer of his sheep's souls. And it doesn't say anything about the sheep needing to do anything to receive that restoration. Only that the Lord, who is their shepherd, restores their soul. The Lord's promise of deliverance in Exodus 3 came with the promise of restoration and a new home for his people. He wasn't just promising the end of slavery, but a new home filled with those things that would refresh a weary people. The call here is to trust that the Lord knows when and where and how to restore our souls. 
He sees us when we are weary and knows how to minister to us in that weariness and bring to us exactly what we need. My encouragement to you this morning is not to give in to cynicism and doubt. That cynicism and doubt that often comes when we are stuck in hard places, waiting for God to meet us. And notice I didn't say that the cynicism and doubt don't come, only that we must not give in to it. These stories aren't here for our entertainment. They are here to teach us that God is true to his promises. So the call is faith. The call is to believe that we serve a God who will bring us up out of the pit of our bondages and into the places of restoration, both in this life and finally in the life to come. The Israelites were about to enter into a journey of learning to trust God for this, not just in the now, but in the future as well. And we have to learn to trust him for this promise as well. God comes down to refresh, he also comes down to empower. God's coming down to save his presence with us in our suffering also brings with it empowerment. In verse 10, the one who comes down and meets with Moses in the burning bush now commissions him to be his spokesman to Pharaoh, uh, to be a spokesman to Pharaoh of God's commitment to deliver his people from oppression. And while Moses will, will, will lead uh, in the commission, he is not the only one who is commissioned. The Lord tells them in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Moses' initial response is, of course, the absolute right response. Moses recognizes both who it is that is commissioning him to go and the magnitude of the task that he is being given. Yes, Moses is going to, he's going to give in to fear of the task before him and ask to be relieved of it. Yet at this point in the narrative, Moses is simply responding in humility to the fact that the God of heaven and earth would even be willing to entrust him with such a task. In fact, brothers and sisters, for all of us who have our faith in Jesus, that we would be commissioned, that we would be commissioned to carry forth God's word of salvation in this world should cause us to say with Moses, who am I? Who are we that God would be pleased to enlist us in his plans for this world? Who are we that God would be pleased to use our mouths, our hands, our feet to carry the good news of his salvation into the world? Perhaps, perhaps it is our lack of awe, our lack of recognition of our insufficiency in and of ourselves for this task that makes us complacent in carrying it out. Moses knew the greatness of who was commissioning him and the greatness of the task before him, and it was this that started the back and forth between him and the Lord as to how he would be able to carry it out. And God does not ignore Moses' question, does not diminish Moses' recognition of his own inability to carry out what he has commissioned him to do. Instead, God answers Moses, letting him know exactly how it is that he will be able to do what he is being commissioned to do. He tells him, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you I have sent, that I've sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, when you brought the people out of Egypt, you, you shall serve God on this mountain. Pay attention. 
because God's answer that he will be with Moses comes with a sign, a sign that Moses will receive at the end of his task. It is as if God is saying, when you begin this journey, I will be with you. And when you get to the end of the journey, I will be with you. In other words, Moses, I'm telling you, you will make it to Mount Sinai. Some of y'all missed that. I will be with you at the beginning. I, I will be with you at the end, which tells you, Moses, you will get to Mount Sinai. There's a lot of stuff going to go on in between the beginning and the end, but you will get to the end. Why? Because I will be with you. Here's what I love about God. He doesn't just give Moses a promise. He gives him a name. How is Moses the elders and the people going to be empowered to stand up against one of the most powerful men on the earth at that time. It will be by reminding themselves of the name of the one who promises to be with them in the task. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God replies, Moses I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There's much been written regarding the name Yahweh and what it means. But in context, Moses isn't just asking what is God's proper name. This isn't like you and I greeting each other and asking each other's names. In the context, God's name is being asked for because there is another name that is wreaking havoc in the lives of God's people. A name that has represented real world impact on the history of God's people. A name that has marginalized them. A name that has mistreated them. A name that has enslaved them. A name that has oppressed them. It is a name that has determined their recent past, their present, and threatens to determine their future. So when God gives his name, in context, he is giving it, he's not giving it purely for theological reflection. He is giving it to send a message to his people, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, and to all who will hear it through the testimony of his people and his acts on their behalf in the world. Pharaoh is just a man, but I am. I'm the Lord of history. I'm the Lord of the present. I'm the Lord of the future. I'm the creator and sustainer of all that is. I am the ruler and judge of all the earth. So when the people ask who is with them, who it is that sent them to you, say, I am has sent me to you. And in case you were wondering, Christian, who it is that is with you, just remember the words of the Lord. In, uh, the Lord Jesus in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. Pharaoh is just a man, but I am. The same Lord who empowered Moses is your Lord and mine and is present with us to provide us the same empowerment to carry this message of his salvation into the world. How many of you feel your insufficiency carrying out God's call to be an agent of proclaiming his freedom, his salvation in the world? If you feel it, 
then good for you. You are in the very place you need to be to receive God's empowerment for the times he has set us on as his people. Going into the world and proclaiming God's salvation will mean standing in front of figurative and literal pharaohs, even though we don't use that title to refer to our rulers anymore. Don't diminish Jesus' words or ignore their impact on our activity in this world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a big calling. Calling to speak and act those good works of God's salvation into real situations of oppression locally and nationally and worldwide. This calling requires a power outside of ourselves, a power that comes from God, the God who has placed his spirit inside all believers to testify to the truth in the face of the lies of the evil one, our flesh, and the world. We must believe that the Lord is with us, that I am is with us, that the promise that our Lord Jesus gives uh, is still true. We must believe that as we speak his word in those, op- in those places where oppression reigns, he will be with us. God comes down to refresh. God comes down to empower. Lastly, God comes down to encounter. The God who refreshes us, who empowers us, is also the God who confronts our enemies on our behalf. God tells Moses, he already knows that Pharaoh would not listen to Moses and the elders' words on behalf of the Lord. God knows the stubborn persistence of evil. He knows that when pressed, evil often refuses to retreat, but rather continues to push back aggressively and foolishly against the kingdom of God. I say foolishly because once God determined in the Garden of Eden that he was not going to give his world over to the power of the serpent and the evil that had come into this world through his lies and his image bearers' acceptance of that lie. Evil's days were numbered. And God is not flippant about evil. He knows the horrors that our sin has unleashed upon his creation. He knows the lives that are devastated by oppressive regimes, by unchecked violence, by greed, by malice, by envy, by lust, and the like. He knows all of it. Indeed, this passage began with God making Moses aware of his awareness of his people's circumstances. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And again, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. No, God is, God is not flippant. God is not dismissive concerning the years of suffering his people have endured, nor the suffering that his world has endured. It is why when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, he does not say to him, I need you to take Pharaoh out. I need you to crush the oppressive power 
of Egypt over the lives of my people. I need you to judge for the things he has done. No, God says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But when it comes to dealing with the evil that Pharaoh has unleashed in the world, God says, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Moses, the message of deliverance will come through your mouth. But the power for deliverance will come through my outstretched hand. My hand will confront the king. My hand will work wonders in the midst of Egypt. My hand will cause him to let you go. And I'm glad this morning for the hand of God. For that hand has not lost an ounce of its strength. Indeed, it is that hand that in the course of time raised up another deliverer. That hand that protected him from the oppressive intentions of an evil ruler when he was a child. That hand that caused him to grow strong, filled with wisdom, and caused favor to rest on him. That hand that started him on his vocation of preaching and uh, about the kingdom of God. That hand that worked wonders through him, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free. That hand that turned his face toward Jerusalem and the cross that awaited him there. That hand that guided him in his last meal with his disciples, giving him a perpetual sign and seal of what he was about to do for them and all who would believe in him through their testimony. That hand that led him from one unjust judgment hall to the next unjust judgment hall. That hand that stretched, oh, that strengthened him for the unjust beating and mocking he received at the hands of wicked men. That hand that prepared him to be stretched wide and hung high on a cross for the sins of the world. That hand that received his spirit when he breathed his last on that rugged cross. That hand that rested on Friday. That hand that rested all day Saturday. And it was that hand that early Sunday morning reached down into the grave and raised him up from the dead. And that hand that set him down at the right hand of the throne in heaven where he forever sits as king of kings and lord of lords. I'm glad this morning for the hand of God. I'm glad this morning for the outstretched hand of the Lord. For through that hand, God has won the salvation of his people. How many of you glad this morning? How many of you glad this morning for the hand of God? You want to know what the call is? It's to believe the gospel. That's the call here. It's to believe that in Jesus and his work on the cross, all our enemies have been defeated. It is believed that God is not ignoring the evil of the world, that he is not powerless in the face of it. The one who brought back our Lord Jesus from the dead, who wrestled down our greatest enemies in sin and death, is not powerless against lesser foes in our lives. While he has called us to follow him in the way of entering into suffering, to bring freedom into the lives of others, he has also promised us that he will vindicate our cause 
as his people before our enemies. This is what we read in promises like that in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is what we read in promises like that in Romans 13. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that truth, brothers and sisters, if we believe it, sets us free to refrain from repaying evil with evil. Rather, we are those who do good, who work for good, even on behalf of those who persecute us. God isn't powerless. He sees what our enemies do to us, and he has promised through the work of his son that the day is coming when we will be set free from all of them. And if you know the Lord, you know that even in this life, God not only encounters our enemies, but breaks the power of their oppression over our lives as we trust in him. Amen, people of God. Our God, our God. Our God is the God who hears the cry of his people as they cry out to him in their suffering. He is the God who comes down, who meets us in that suffering to bring the blessings of his salvation to bear in our lives. His coming down brings with it refreshment, empowerment, and an encounter with our enemies. What greater testimony to this than the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? In him, God heard our cry, brought spiritual rescue that each and every one of us needed. How will he then not meet us each and every day in our places of suffering to communicate the blessings of his salvation, which we now have in relationship with him? Have faith, people of God. You serve a faithful God. You serve a present God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we worship you this morning. We give you praise and glory and honor and thanks that you are not distant. Even though we may feel in seasons of our life that you are far away, you have promised that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. You have promised that you will be with us always, even until the end of the age. Help us to believe not what our hearts feel and not what our heads think, but what you have said. Help us to believe, Lord, that you are always with us, always with us to bring the blessings of your salvation to bear in our lives. I pray for your people this morning. Wherever they are experiencing suffering, trial, hardship, difficulty, I pray that you would make yourself known to them in that, that you would make yourself present to them in that, that they would feel and know your presence and believe that you're not just there, but you are there to minister the blessings of your salvation. I pray this over your people this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.